Well, this morning we're going to look at this deception and deliverance in four stages that lead to the Gibeonites actually being included into the people of God. This pagan city. And from this, we're going to learn that we can have a greater appreciation and confidence in God when we see His patience and His heart for us. Because just like the Gibeonites, just like the Israelites, despite our sin, He has delivered us. So once again, we come to the main theme of our series, a conquering faith is a faith in Christ. And chapter 9 of Joshua points us to the conquering faith that we have in Christ, that He will accomplish His plan for my life and His plan for this world. You can mark it down. God will accomplish His plan. Let's pray. Father, as we set out this morning to uh, look at this first half of chapter 9, Lord, I pray that You would indeed be with us and guide our hearts and our minds in Your truth. Father, would You not let the evil one, the deceiver, the great deceiver, snatch away the seed of the Gospel that you desire to plant deeper into our hearts. Lord, would You be our Master Teacher and would Your Spirit take what we hear and apply it to our lives and cause us to live in the reality of Your truth. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to look at at least two of the stages that we see in this narrative in Joshua 9 that leads to this great deception and this great deliverance. And the first thing that we're going to look at, and Terry read the passage already for us, we're going to look at the first five verses, a contrast of responses to what God is doing. There was a clear contrast here of how God's working in the land of Canaan would be received by the Canaanites. Let's read verses 1 and 2 as we begin. It says, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So from what God has done so far in chapters 1-7 to of Joshua, the first response we see is one of defiance. This is not simply defiance. This is, verse 1 shows us, complete defiance. As soon as not some, but all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, 
And he lists these, these geographical locations, the hill country, the lowlands, the coast of the great sea, all the way to Lebanon. In other words, what Joshua is recording for us is the complete land of Canaan is in rebellion against God. I have a map there on the screen for you. And basically, you see that the the river there, that squiggly line, is the Jordan River. And basically, what Joshua is detailing for us is from east to west. The whole area is responding in defiance of God. The the highlands, the mountains, are are, uh, that region. I don't have a pointer, nor will a pointer work on a screen. But right to uh, to the left of the Jordan River, the lowlands are getting closer to the Mediterranean Sea that you see on the far left. Then you see the coast, and if you can read, all the way at the top of the screen is Lebanon. So what Joshua is describing for us is all of Canaan is in defiance of God and His people. There's not a single part that's left out. This is intimidating Yet we have to contrast this with chapter 1 and verse 4. If you want to just turn a few pages to chapter 1 of Joshua, what does God already tell Joshua before he ever crosses the Jordan River into the land of Canaan? From the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. You see, there is complete defiance here. But God has also, in the midst of this complete defiance, given a complete sufficient promise before any of this ever occurred God says the land is yours Joshua I've given it to you and to the people you know isn't it interesting how things come up in our lives and happen that are completely sometimes unexpected and sometimes expected And it seems to completely, in our minds, negate all of the promises that we know of God and His faithfulness in the Scriptures. We let all of those promises go out the window because of what is now occurring. But God has already said to Joshua, all of these geography points... I've given them to you. Not that you are even going to take it. I am giving it to you. And they have that promise. Well, not only to emphasize the vastness of this 
<clears throat> this attitude of defiance does Joshua mention all of the, the geographical points that are here, but he also mentions all of these people groups. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, I know, Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. All of these people. This is a different map. And yeah, it looks, it looks a lot more readable on a computer screen. Um, but this map is, is a little bit unique in that it mentions um, some of the people groups and their locations. You have the, the, the uh, I don't have my glasses, the Hivites up at the top, um, the Girgashites a little lower, the Hivites, which we're going to talk about. Uh, the Gibeonites were a part of the Hivite people group right there in the center. Uh, Perizzites below them all the way down. Again, this is encompassing all of the territory. This is telling us all of Canaan is against you. But once again, the trial does not match God's promises. In fact, in Exodus 34, verses 11 and 12, God tells Moses this. Moses relays, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That people group sound familiar? Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Again, they already have the promises of God. These are great people groups, but they are in rebellion against me, and I have given them into your hand. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 to 18. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Again, God has declared not only what they should do, but what God will give them the ability to do for their own purity. So this must not stand as an obstacle of intimidation in the way of the Israelites. They were to continue in faith. Isn't it easy to start out in faith, but hard to continue in faith? I mean, I think of, of, of different times in my own life where I've received bad news or troubling news. And, and, and it's amazing that at first you're able to say, Lord, I give this to you. I'm going to walk by faith. I'm not sure what the solution is. I'm not sure how we're even going to go about this, but I give this to you. And, and, and there is a peace that comes, but guess what? 
Then a couple hours later or the next morning, you wake up and the reality of the situation weighs heavier on your mind. Reality sets in and, and all of those feelings are back. And, and it's easy to start out in faith, but the challenge is to continue. And that's exactly what Israel was having to do. God's given them Jericho. God's given them Ai. He's, he's performed miracles. But man, now you have the attention of, of the whole country. The whole territory. And they're saying, we need to do something about this. And yesterday's victories, as Israel learned from Joshua and Ai, don't guarantee tomorrow's. Well, the end of verse 1 says, they heard of this. You may say, what is the this? The this, as we will read about Gibeon, are the works of God. What has happened on the other side of the Jordan River with Sihon and Og, and also what's happened at Jericho and Ai? In fact, if you flip over to Joshua chapter 5 and, and verse 1, you see very similar wording to what we read in chapter 9 and verse 1. It says there in chapter 5 and verse 1, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. There's your similarity of wording there. They heard about these great acts of God. All of these people, and here in 5.1, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. But, the reaction is different here. No longer are their hearts melting. Maybe some of this, some of this is no doubt fear, but not a paralyzing fear, a fear we're going to now have to do something about this. But also, maybe they caught wind as well. Well, they were defeated once, maybe they can be defeated again. What's the reaction if it's not their hearts melted, verse 2 says they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. This is not only defiance, this is to the extreme, this is willful defiance. They gathered together as one, in one accord. Literally, the Hebrew reads, they gathered together with one mouth, describing their unity. In other words, they were all saying the same thing. Down with Israel and their God. I like what one individual says. He says, theologically, their war plans reveal a fateful decision. The rejection of Yahweh. And sharply contrast the alternative conciliatory approach soon to appear. In these kings' minds, in these countries' minds, there is no going back. It is full force ahead to undo 
what Israel's God has done. And folks, there's a bigger picture here than simply what happened with Joshua and the Canaanites. Folks, the bigger picture here is that this is what Scripture says is true of the world at large. As Jesus Christ, our greater Joshua, is leading us to the promised land, the new heaven, the new earth, here is the attitude of this world, of those who are under Satan's deception. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, this is the attitude to a world system that opposes God. Not simply in our day, but all the way back to the beginning of sin entering into this world. And just as we see that God was victorious for His people in Joshua, God will be victorious for His people until the very end. This is willful defiance. The first response to God's working that we see is defiance. But then there's a second response to God's working that we see in this chapter. And it is the response of deceit. Now, neither of these responses are good, right? I mean, uh, would you, uh, parent, would you, parents, would you rather have your children respond to you with defiance or deceit? <laughs> I mean, uh, neither option's good, right? It's like, which, uh, which, which kind of poison do you want? So we see a response from these Gibeonite people that are still etched in what they know, what they are used to, evil and wickedness, but there is not the same reaction toward Yahweh God that we read of with the Gibeonites that we see with the rest of the inhabitants of Canaan. But nonetheless, we see some interesting lessons from this narrative of both the dangers of deceit and the blessings of how God can work even through the wickedness of the human heart. When we look at deceit, we see first of all that this deceit was pondered. In verse 3, there's a contrast to the rest of the nations in Canaan. It says, But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning 
and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. Verse 3 shows that the people of Gibeon pondered a plan. What are we going to do as a city in light of what is happening with these Israelite people and their God? Should we join this confederation? Should we choose out a different way? I would have loved to be in these, these uh, city elder discussions as they were pondering what to do. Wouldn't it be interesting? We're going to read a little bit later in chapter 10 that Gibeon, uh, that, that, that the, the city of Gibeon was a mighty and strong city. These guys weren't weaklings. This wasn't, we're a fledgling city-state in Canaan, so what do we do? Let's just run to the nearest accessible place to, to run for help. No, this was a mighty city. Mighty enough that a coalition is formed in chapter 10 to attack Gibeon for what they did. You have another map on the screen. The more you study the Bible, the, the more you will see the, uh, the um, helpfulness of maps. Uh, they're not just for decorations at the beginning or ending of your Bible. Uh, but you'll see uh, in the land of Canaan, you see a, a, a zoomed-in picture with the little location um, indicator of where Gibeon is in the land of Canaan. Then when you zoom out, you'll see uh, in the bottom right-hand corner um, a general geographical location of where Gibeon is in relation to the land of Canaan. Most individuals say that Gibeon was very close to Ai, about seven miles southwest of Ai. We're going to read later in verse 7 that Gibeon, the Gibeonites were a part of the larger people group called the Hivites. And there are four cities that take part in this deception. We will read later in verse 17. So among all of the, 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 the region of Canaan, out of all of the land, there is one segment of a people group who say, let's do something different than everybody else. Again, it was deceit. It wasn't right. But it was different. And we see some parallels here with chapter 9 to chapter 2 of Joshua. Who was the one person that did something different than all of the inhabitants of Jericho? It was Rahab, was it not? Rahab, the prostitute, decided to do something different. And the Gibeonites, with all of their flaws, are a parallel 
to Rahab. Well, not only was this deceit pondered, this deceit was planned. They're thinking about what do we do. They start to get some ideas and they start to run with it. In fact, in verse 4, it says, they on their part acted with cunning. I mean, this was a cleverly devised plan. It's interesting, this word cunning, um, it can be used in a positive or negative way depending on the context. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, this word cunning is used and is translated prudence. So in a good way, this cunningness, uh, in a good context, it, it, it is translated as prudence. Living carefully, circumspectly, wise. But in the context as we have here, in other contexts in the Old Testament, this word is also used negatively. It's used to deceive. To deceive. In fact, a related word to what we have here in chapter 9 with cunning, a related word, is what we read of in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was very crafty. Very cunning. You see, I think we have here, through the back door, a plan and a hope on Satan's part that this will somehow throw off God's plan and destroy God's people. But there's a cunningness here. This plan was not only cunning, but it was convincing. They went out and made ready provisions. They took worn out sacks for their donkeys, wineskins worn out, torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. Now this couldn't have been that long of a, of a devised plan but somehow they made everything look old or get old or whatever, and they had all of the evidence in the world to back up their plan. This was convincing. They had worn out gear, they had worn out clothing, and they had worn out food. And then we also see that this plan, this deceit went from being pondered to being planned to then being presented in verses 6 to 15. And that's going to lead us to our second stage here in this story. The first one is we look at a contrast of responses. And then secondly, we see a conscious plan of deception. This was a conscious plan of deception. Verses 6 to 11, we see a story is told, and boy, it was a good one. In fact, nothing that will deceive you is going to be a bad story that is like, duh, that 
that's dumb. I mean, you know, wouldn't it be nice if in all of life, and if the, 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 the deception of sin would be as simple as a four-year-old that tries to deceive its parents? Did you take that jar of candy and they have the jar behind their backs? Mm-mm. <laughs> or it's all over their face. And it's easy to be like, you're, you're lying, aren't you? But Satan doesn't craft the deception of sin that easily, does he? This was a mighty good story that's told. In verse 6, we see that this story starts out with an introduction and a request. Verse 6 says, And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. So here's the introduction is that they come to Joshua and to the Israelites, and here Joshua is emphasized because he is the leader of this people group. They came to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. There's their introduction. And then they very quickly get to their objective. Make a covenant with us. I mean, right away, there's a demand there. Here we are. Here's what we want you to do. Now, if your finger is in Deuteronomy 20, if you want to turn uh, to that passage. I mean, the Gibeonites have obviously heard of God's working. Could they have known about this passage? Maybe, maybe not. But speaking of cities that were far away from the Israelites, here the Lord instructs, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoils, you shall take as plunder for yourselves and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. Now get verse 15. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are, that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So God is saying again, because of the influence of the wickedness of the Canaanites, God says, do not even seek to make peace with the wicked inhabitants of Canaan. But if there are cities far away from you, go and seek peace first. And then if they do not, you go to war against it. 
Could the Gibeonites have been familiar with this law of the people of Israel? Maybe, maybe not. But that is part of the background of what's going on in Joshua and Israel's mind. So this is the, their introduction and their very quick request. Please make a covenant with us. Now verses 7-11 to 11 talk about Israel's reply in the, in the Gibeonites' defense. The Israelites give hesitation here in verse 7. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? And you look at the end of verse 8. Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? So this is their reply. They're immediately suspicious, and rightly so. The reason that, the, that Israel wants to be careful is as I, uh, we looked at earlier, Exodus 34.12 says, Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. The last thing that Joshua and the elders of Israel and the Israelites themselves want to do is to once again go against God's law. Remember what just happened at Ai? You see, there's a danger of putting the nation in disobedience to God a second time. But don't worry. The Gibeonites give an assurance. In fact, there's Three assurances. Verse 8 says, They said to Joshua, We are your servants. The first assurance that the Gibeonites give to Joshua is that they are subservient to Israel. We are your servants. We're not greater than you. We're coming to you simply asking for a covenant to be made. Then at the beginning of verse 9, they said to him, this is in response to Joshua's question, who are you, where do you come from? We're from a very distant country. Your servants have come. The second assurance is that they are from a faraway land. We're not a part of, of Canaan, of all of these wicked nations. We are from a very, very faraway place. Then there's a third assurance that they give. And this one, I think, holds the most weight in Joshua and the people's minds. Their third assurance is that they are familiar with Israel's God. It says, Because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of Him and all that He did in Egypt in all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. We've heard of your God, and therefore we've come because we recognize what a great God you serve. Very familiar to what Rahab said, was it not? However, Rahab is speaking in truth and in sincerity of who she is. 
and where she is. I like what one individual said. They, uh, I have this on the screen for you. It says, their answer is at the same time expansive and evasive. They completely breeze past the request for an ethnic name and very distant country names no specific homeland. Remember Joshua says, where are you and where have you come from? They just give this vague answer. The quote continues, they emphasize the reason for their trip. The magnet of Yahweh's fame has drawn them to visit the Israelites. They cite reports of his victories over Egypt and Sihon and Og east of the Jordan. Their words echo Rahab's similar affirmation during her own negotiations for her life. Get this. Their historical review of Yahweh's great deeds cleverly masks a diversion meant to distract Israel from finding their true status. News of Ai and Jericho gave birth to their plan, but here they mention only events from outside Canaan. Subtly, subtly they feign ignorance of the latest local news, thus reinforcing their claim of being foreigners. See what's going on here? They're giving just enough information to try to soothe the question marks. And they're masking the full truth. They knew all about Jericho and Ai, but they wanted the truth to look like we were on our distant, country, our distant journey when all those things happened. We only heard about the stuff that happened under Moses when you were on the other side of the Jordan River. Folks, Satan works in vagueness and he puts just enough truth in there to make the argument compelling. When the Holy Spirit works, the Holy Spirit, I have found in my life and you see in Scripture, is always very specific Gentle, yet firm. And you are, are, are at a point, whether it's a decision or whether it's, it's an action or an attitude, where there is an assurance in your heart of what is right. But Satan works in these vague ways of, well, maybe you should do this because of this. Because you don't want that to happen. All of these vague ways. And he seeks to deceive through putting just enough meat around the hook that you don't notice the hook. And it's not until after you take the bite that you're like, why was I so foolish 
We can even mask doing good things with just enough truth to justify why doing something good is actually the right thing to do. The Gibeonites in verse 11, they they conclude here, it says, So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provision in your hand for the journey and and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Do you notice the forcefulness here? Do you notice the hurried demand for a response? Come on, make a decision before you think too hard. I mean, that's a great salesman, right? Come on, get this. Why do you think Walmart hangs certain things uh, out of place of where they normally would be in the store, out in the aisle way or hanging at the end of an aisle, so that you see it, think, oh, that's interesting, and you make a quick decision and throw it in your cart. Why do you think credit cards are such a easy thing to run into debt because you slide the thing and don't have to think much because you're not actually having paper money that you're having to dole out for things. The quick response. Beware of the quick decision. So many an individual has lost their way because of the quick decision. The knee-jerk reactions. The I've got this covered. I'm going to go and do this. That's exactly what we see here. The Gibeonites are pressing them. It's the second time that they've made this request. Right at the beginning, they see the, 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 they see the, uh, the Israelites. They say, we've come from a far country. Make a covenant with us. And then here in verse 11, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Come on, so what do you say? We don't have all all day here. Come on, what, what do you say? This is one of the methods of the enemy, the wicked one, Satan. This is one of the things in, in our own flesh that we battle with. Let's make a quick response. Either to satisfy our own lusts or to try to remain feeling like we're in control. Well, our time is about done. And our passage isn't done, but I'm going to end early here. We're going to look next week at the second half of this chapter and we're going to see Um, In this passage, what we're going to go over today, that verses 12 to 14, evidence is presented and a decision was made. We'll expound upon those two things next week. But Terry mentioned a very interesting verse, and I was going to mention it this morning, and I will mention it. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that familiar verse that's so easy to recite and so hard to live. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Or uh, literally the idea, in all your ways, seek Him. 
and He will direct your path. How many times do we go down the road of what makes sense to us? It's easy for me to do. It's easy for you to do. Especially when you are experienced in certain things and, and you, know, you get to a point in life where you've made lots of life decisions. So what's your, what's your uh, reaction? Well, I'll just make another life decision. It's easy for churches Oh, okay, there's this need. Let's not pray about it. Let's not think about it. Let's, let's not give it time. Let's just make a decision. This is a danger for individuals, for couples, for families, for churches. Are we seeking our way or God's way? Let's pray.